Psalms chapter number 11 tonight. Psalms chapter number 11. And I want to take just a few moments of, of your time tonight and, and preach to you on a, uh, on a thought that God laid on my heart out of this psalm. Psalms chapter number 11. And let's begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read the entirety of the psalms. Only seven verses. We'll use all of it in the preaching tonight. Psalms chapter number 11, uh, verse number 1. The Word of God says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes, behold, His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous. But the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in your house. I pray that you take the word of God and that your spirit would wield it. Lord, it's his tool, his instrument, his weapon. I pray that he would take his sword and wield it in our lives, Lord, to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, Lord, to the to the very detailed work of our heart and life, to deal with the very things and areas of our life that need to be more surrendered unto you. Lord, I pray that you'd bless everything that's said tonight, and may Christ be magnified. We ask all this in his precious name. Amen. I want you to take special notice of verse number three. In the midst of this psalm, the psalmist asks a very searching question. He says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I've heard this word applied, particularly in regards to a person's belief in the Bible. Uh, Certainly, I would say this, that when a man tries to uh, whittle away at and destroy a person's confidence in the inspired and errant word of God, they certainly are destroying the foundation of the Christian life. And I would say tonight that if we don't believe we've got the Word of God, we don't have a foundation to our Christian life. Uh, we have no direction. We have no bedrock. We have uh, no solid footing upon which to live this life. But reading this verse in the context of this psalm, while I think certainly an application can be made in regards to the Word of God, I don't think that's what the psalmist is talking about when he talks about the foundations here. I think rather what he's talking about is the foundations of a godly society. He's living in a day when he is watching the foundations of society that has at one time loved God, revered God, honored God, obeyed God, being destroyed, systematically dismantled around him. And he asks this question, in that environment where everything is being torn down, what can the righteous do? What is their recourse? What choices do they have? What opportunities can they avail themselves of? I want to preach to you for a few moments tonight on this thought. What can the righteous do in the rubble? I don't know about you, but when I look around at this world, it feels like it's getting ready to come off the wheels sometimes. There's so much tension in our society. There's so much anger in our society. There's so much wickedness in our society. And you can't help but look at it and think sometimes, man, How long can it keep going that way before everything just sort of shakes and rattles apart and society begins to collapse? 
can I encourage you a little bit tonight? People spend a lot of time sort of doomsdaying and doomsaying over what's going to happen. But can I tell you, even if the foundations fall all to pieces, there's still a recourse for the people of God. Hey, listen, God's people have survived a lot of societies falling and toppling. You go back all the way to the early uh, church in, 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 the new, uh, in the New Testament, the first century church. Think about all the empires that God's people have lived through in that time. You could go even further back than that. I mean, I think you'd go all the way back to Seth in the Old Testament and seeing him living in a day that was rapidly degrading in its condition, but he remained faithful. He followed after God. At that point, men began to call upon God. You could follow that line all the way through Scripture, and here's what you'll find. Ever since mankind cast off God's authority and began to go his own direction and do that which was right in his own eyes ever since then, it's just been one sad, tragic Groundhog's Day over and over again of societies rising and societies crumbling. But woven throughout all of that is the faithful of God's people staying encouraged, staying faithful to God, and living for Him. I'd say this, I don't know what's going to happen in our society. There's a number of things that are taking place that are quite troubling, just to be frank with you. Uh, I sometimes look at the things that are happening, and I think to myself, what a dark road this all leads down. But it don't matter how it winds up, God will still be on the throne. God's people can still stay faithful. And God's people can remain in their testimony righteous before this world. Let me say before I get into the preaching tonight that what I'm going to preach on is not the only thing the righteous can do, but it is one thing the righteous can do. It's going to center on a particular thought, but there's a lot of things we could and should be doing in these days of decline in our country and in our civilization. But before we get there, I want you to notice what this process looks like. Look back at verse number 1. It says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? So the psalmist is living in a day when he has witnessed the spiritual foundations of society being destroyed. He's saying that I trust in God, I believe in God, and yet all those around me are looking at me saying how foolish you are for trusting God. Instead, you ought to flee to the mountain, you ought to take your life in your own hands, you ought to become the God of your own self-determination, and you should not live and follow this God and trust in this God that you're believing in, because this God is merely a fairy tale and nothing else. I'd say we're living in those days, wouldn't you? We're living in a time when the spiritual foundations of society have been ripped out, at least here in America, from underneath her. And we're living in a society that at one time was godly, at least uh, externally speaking in some respects, and a society that revered the idea of, uh, of there being a God and there being a Word of God. But now we're living in a day when belief in God is mocked, when it is ridiculed, when it is scorned, when it is criticized, when it is blamed as the very source of all the ills of society. I don't know if you realize it, and maybe you're just waking up to realize it, but you're living in a secular society today. I'm talking about here in America, in the, in, in the, in the country of, of God's blessing, you're living in a highly secularized society where religion has been relegated to just being sort of a, a cultural token that people are permitted to keep because it soothes them, but it is given no credence as there really being a God in heaven, really being a Bible on earth, or really being a people of God here in this country. We are living in a day when the spiritual foundations of society have been destroyed. Look at verse number 2. The psalmist says, For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. 
In other words, David looks at it and says, not only have they rejected a belief in God, they've scorned and mocked my faith in God, but now they are conspiring to undermine that faith by targeting me in hostility. They're not trying to target those that are criminals, those that are wrongdoers, those that are wicked in their behavior, but instead they're trying to target the upright in heart because the upright in heart is a threat to their control and their power. I'd say this, we see not only the spiritual foundations as being destroyed, but we see the moral foundations are destroyed. Let me say to you tonight, if the spiritual foundations are destroyed, the moral foundations will be destroyed. I know the atheist likes to wrap himself in the delusion that he can be good without God, but here's the reality about the atheist that he doesn't want to admit. Can the atheist be good without God? Sure he can, but he can't be good without anyone watching him. What I mean by that is his morality is stagecraft, meant to prop up a worldview. It is an external morality, but it has no root internally in a change in his condition. Only a born-again believer is changed from the inside out and lives righteously, not because men behold him or not because men expect it of him, but because there's a God in heaven that has changed his heart and life and expects him to live in a righteous way. And so inevitably, after the spiritual foundation of society are destroyed, Pretty soon, a secular society will all start looking around and asking this question, who are we behaving for? I want to live wickedly and you want to live wickedly, so let's just live wickedly. And that's certainly the day that we're living in today. We've been told, hey listen, since they ripped God and prayer out of the schools, we've been told for 40, 50 years now that it wasn't going to have a bad effect. I'll let you judge for yourself, man. I'm not even going to waste time giving you example after example of the depravity going on today in society. Just suffice it to say that the moral foundations have been destroyed. And now we live in a day where men call evil good and good evil. And they don't even do it with a sense of irony anymore. They do it with a bullying expectation that you expect and you accept their rewriting of what righteousness is. We are living in a time when the moral foundations are destroyed. And then he goes on to say, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Because if the spiritual foundations are destroyed, the moral ones will follow. And if the moral foundations are destroyed, you mark her down, the social foundations will soon follow. We will, I don't want to use the term revert because it's evolutionist kind of mentality in this context. But certainly we will, we will degress into being a tribal society that is only interest is self-interest, has no consciousness of who God is, no desire to create a righteous society or a safe society. That's where we're living today. Listen, I'm thankful to live in the area of our country that, that I live in. And I understand it's always, it's always, on some things it's worse on the news than what it really is in real life. And, and on a lot of other things it's better on the news than what it really is in real life. But we're living in a relatively safe part of the world. There are parts of major cities you could go into today that you can see that the foundations have been destroyed. I'm talking about whole, uh, whole square miles of, of cities that is nothing but brokenness and addiction and, and violence and aggression and hatred. We're watching things unravel. And it's easy to get discouraged in those times. I understand that. It's easy to look around and say, you know, what can we do if all of society is headed this direction? I mean, if we're all in a big old canoe and we're paddling one direction, but everybody's paddling the other direction, what can we do in those days? Well, again, there's many things I think we can do. But there's one that the psalmist singles out particularly. And again, this is not the limit of what we can do. You say, preacher, what all can we do? Well, we can pray. We can witness to people. 
Uh, we can keep standing for truth. We can keep standing for what's right, even when it's not popular, even when it is not applauded, even when it doesn't promote us through society. But what does the psalmist say for our own peace of mind, for our own heart? What can we do? I think we have the answer in verse number one. Notice the first phrase. He says, in the Lord put I my trust. Before he ever speaks about the decaying nature of society, he says, I have committed to trust God in the midst of everything. Somehow this has become an unfashionable thing to say in churches today. But we ought to be trusting God. I understand we live in a society where you just plug up to the rage machine, the outrage machine of, of, of cable news and, and just sit there and sort of be lulled to sleep by your own anger and bitterness. And I understand that. I understand we live in a time where we're supposed to be plugged into the fear machine and just constantly cower and live in fear of danger, some imaginary and some not. But I'm here to tell you not that as God's people, you have an obligation to trust Him in these days. Faith isn't optional. We need to trust Him in these days. What do we need to trust in? Well, I want you to notice four things and I'll be done tonight. Look at verse number four. After describing the decline of society, here's what the psalmist says. He says, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. I'd say number one tonight, you say, preacher, what do we do, man? Society's falling apart. Number one, trust in the Lord's majesty and trust in His position as God. Notice what he says, number one. He says, remember where the Lord sits. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The idea is reminding us that God's throne don't sit on the same foundation that's crumbling beneath your feet and my feet. Can I promise you something? God does not feel threatened by any of this. He doesn't. Now, I'm not saying it is not an affront to His authority. I'm not saying it's not an outrage to His holiness. But I'm saying God's not up in heaven, nervous, shaking, trembling, wondering, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? He's not doing that. His throne is perfectly secure. As we read through the Word of God, there's only one thing that ever shook heaven and earth, and that was the cross of Calvary. Beyond that, there ain't nothing disrupts what God's doing. The Bible says in Psalms chapter number two, in fact, let me read it. I just, I'm so close to it here with my Bible in my hand. Why don't I just go ahead and read it to you? It says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. By the way, that's what they're doing today. You mark her down, man. There's a satanic conspiracy in our world. There's a mystery of iniquity that now worketh. It worked in John's day. It worked in Paul's day. You better believe it's still working today. It ain't got nothing to do with trying to whoop this political party or that political party. It ain't got nothing to do with trying to get this leader in or trying to get that leader out. It's all about getting Jesus off His throne. Throwing off the yoke of God's authority. But it says this. They made this statement in verse 3. Let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. Don't want God running our life. Listen to what it says about God. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. This is what He said. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. 
I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth, for thy possession, for thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I'd say this, uh, no matter what's going on, don't forget where the Lord's sitting tonight. He's not disturbed and disrupted. I'm not saying it doesn't grieve him how wicked this world is, but I'm saying he ain't up there trying to figure out an exit strategy. He's in control of every bit of this. The foundations of what they can touch, they may be able to destroy. But hey, listen, underneath are the everlasting arms. God's foundation standeth sure. Amen. Remember where he sits. But then number two, remember what he sees. It says, his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Now the word try here, it carries with it the idea of purging or testing or perfecting. And in the context of verse number 4, what it deals with is the idea of him seeing perfectly the condition of mankind. And can I say, one of the great discouraging things in our society is it seems like nobody cares. Now let me let you in on a little secret. There's a lot more folks care than they want you thinking cares. There's a lot more folks care. I was watching a little earlier a news video of... uh, uh, in, uh, a group of people protesting the vaccine mandate in Italy. And there was hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets protesting the vaccine mandate. And the local government had literally changed the footage on the local live webcam to make it seem as though that public square was empty. They've got footage in the public square of them showing the live cam and it appearing empty. They had switched, put stock footage in there because they were so terrified of people seeing that there were hundreds of thousands of people protesting this vaccine mandate out there in the middle of the street. In other words, there is a vested interest in effort. It is one of the strategies of evil propaganda to make you feel isolated and alone. To make you think that Nobody else feels this way, that nobody else thinks this way, that you're all alone. Hey, if, if, if the devil was going to get Elijah discouraged, he had to get him alone in a cave with his face wrapped in a mantle to get him in that condition. If he'd come outside of the cave, he would have found out God and 7,000 prophets were still doing the right thing. In other words, one of the things the devil tries to do is convince us we're all alone, that no one sees. And we get discouraged because we say, well, preacher, there's so much wickedness and no one sees and no one cares what's going on. But I've got news for you. The one that really matters. He both sees and he cares what's happening. He's watching all things. There's never been anything occur that he's not seen and taken note of. So I'd say, number one, trust in the Lord's majesty tonight, his position. Look at verse number five. He goes on to use this word try, but he uses it in a little bit different context. He says, the Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Preacher, what can we do? Society's falling apart. Trust in his majesty, his position. But number two, trust in the Lord's wisdom. Trust in his providence. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, you know, in the midst of all of this, God's doing something. They may be trying to tear down, stick and shingle uh, all of society. They may be trying to dismantle Everything that's good about the world that we that we built and lived in. Don't you forget one moment. They may be working, but God's working too. God's doing some things. What is He doing? Well, notice His providence, number one, in perfecting the righteous. The Lord trieth the righteous. So in other words, all that we see God's people going through, it is not merely mindless, senseless suffering and chaos. 
It's easy to feel that way sometimes. It's easy to look around and say, you know, what is it all for? Every time that something happens in society, we always think, well, the next thing that happens will be a bridge too far and people will finally wake up and people will finally see. How many times have we been saying that? And it seems like atrocity after atrocity, scandal after scandal, wickedness after wickedness. And you'll get disheartened. You'll, you'll begin to look around and think, man, it's like nothing's ever going to change. It's just like society's going to get worse and worse. There's two things I'd say about that. One, society is going to get worse and worse. You read your Bible, right? It ain't getting better. It's getting worse. Then I would say, number two, don't forget that for all that Satan's working in this world, God's working as well. One of the things He's doing is the things that, that, that touch the life of a righteous person. It's not senseless mayhem and suffering. Rather, it is providential testing and purging. He is perfecting the righteous. He is working all of these things for our good and for His glory in our lives. And if we will choose to view these things as administered by the benevolent hand of a loving God that is all-wise and powerful, then we can learn that these things go to our benefit. They make us closer. They make us more committed. They make us more righteous. They build our strength and they build our confidence and they give us a calm resolve that God is in control. Now, if we choose not to view them that way, of course they'll rattle us and unsettle us. But if we instead say, you know, in the midst of all this, God's still working in the hearts and lives of His people. And I can choose to see God's hand in my life instead of always seeing what the devil's trying to do in my life only. I would say this, he, his, his wisdom, His providence in perfecting the righteous. But then look what it says in the next verse, or the next phrase in verse 5. It says, but... The wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Now, I don't necessarily believe this means that God holds some kind of personal grudge or animus towards a lost person. The Bible says he's angry with the wicked every day. What he's angry with is their sin. And he was angry with your sin whenever you were in unrighteousness as well. But he still loves them and he still saved them. The Bible says God so loved the world. So what does it mean when it says him that loveth violence, his soul hateth? Well, it's in comparison to the prior statement. And what it's saying is that the sorrow and suffering that is brought into a righteous person's life is brought into their life to perfect them and to purge them and to grow them and to develop them. Oftentimes we look at wicked people and say, well, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering brought into their life. Why are they allowed and permitted to live unrighteously and get away with it. But here's what the psalmist is reminding you of. God will not forget their unrighteousness. Just as God is not unfaithful to forget your righteousness, He's not unfaithful to forget their unrighteousness. And if they don't repent of that sin, you mark her down, they'll come a day, they'll have to answer for all those things. In other words, He's perfect, and His wisdom and His providence is right in perfecting the righteous, but not only that, in reserving the wicked as well. When we speak of someone holding a personal grudge, we're talking about something they don't forget, that they don't let go of. And I'd say this, while God does not have a petty personal grudge against unrighteous people, He will not let go of their trespasses and transgressions. They can be dealt with in grace and mercy by the cross of Calvary, but if they refuse and reject that hope and that plea, then you rest assured God will deal with them one of these days. Second Peter illustrates this very clearly to us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 4, listen to what it says. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, 
bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. Now remember, these three events that are spoken about, the, the angels falling from heaven, being cast out of heaven, the, the flood that took place in the days of Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are all three separate events that took place in three very, very broadly spaced periods of time. Why is Peter bringing all these up? Because what he is saying is this. God is able to reserve the evil unto a day of judgment. He's able to preserve the righteous and reserve the evil. And it may seem like the judgment of God is slow in coming, but it will always surely arrive and arrive in exactly the right way. In other words, we look around and say, they're getting away with it, preacher. They're getting away with all of it. But no, nobody gets away with anything. I want you to hear me tonight. I think, I think, listen, I, and I'm not, I'm no prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. My mama wasn't even a prophet. But I want you to listen. Now, I know what's going on in your head and heart. Because you're like I am. And you're thinking, they're getting away with it. They're getting away with all of it. They're getting away with their dishonesty. They're getting away with their unrighteousness. They're getting away with their theft and their coercion. They're getting away with their tyranny. They're getting away with all of it, preacher. But that's just what your flesh says. You open your Bible and your Bible will tell you they ain't going to get away with any of it. No, God will deal with them. Trust in the Lord's wisdom. And that leads us to verse number 6. He says this, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Trust in the Lord's majesty. Trust in His wisdom and His providence. Trust in the Lord's justice. Trust in His punishment of the wicked. He mentions two things here about the punishment of the Lord. First, he mentions its painful manner. He says, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. I don't know about you. For me, I've got a, I've got a big yard that I mow. I mow about an acre, and i got a slow lawn mower. He used to be a good mower, and I bought it from Kerry. He left it out in the rain for years. He don't take care of his things. And it just ain't it ain't fast mower, and so it, 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 it's good mower because I rescued it, but it's a slow mower. And And mowing for me can be either real good or real bad depending on my frame of mind. All right, I'm about to tell on myself a little bit here. Sometimes if I'm in a real spiritual way of thinking, mowing's real good for me, man. I get out there, I'll listen to the Bible being read sometimes. I'll pray. I'll work on sermons while I'm out on the mower. You, you ain't. Next time I preach a good sermon, go look at my yard. And what you'll see is it's all just, because I'm not paying no attention. I was working on But then if I'm in a bad way, I mean, mowing can be a dark place for me. Because I've got a lot of time to space out and to plot against my enemies. Somebody say amen to that. You know, where you just you, you just simmer and you dwell and you think about all the things. I, 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 it wouldn't edify you and it wouldn't glorify me to go into all the details, so I'm not going to do it. But suffice it to say, there's been times, you know, you're, you're trying to think, boy, if I could get even with that person. Boy, if I, if I could, boy, I'd do this and I'd do this and I'd do this. But you know, the psalmist, he's been spending a little time doing that. He's been coming up with all of his plans, how he wishes he could get even with all those evil people that have done him wrong. You know what he's learned? 
He's learned that the best he could do, if his master plan was carried out to eloquent perfection, he couldn't even come close to pouring on them what God can pour on them. He speaks about three areas. He talks about, number one, that God will judge them with snares. Now, a snare is a trap. And the Bible speaks often about those that lay a snare will they themselves fall into it. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I've witnessed how that God has taken the machinations of wicked men and turned them on them very selves and caused them to be the subject of their own evil. God has the ability to make their plans blow up in their face. Not only does he speak of snares, but he speaks of suffering. He says fire and brimstone. This is associated with divine displeasure and justice. We preached a little this morning about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, He rained fire and brimstone. It's said that in the book of Revelation, God will one day again rain fire and brimstone. And that deals with God's divine judgment administered directly and in supernatural ways. In other words, God has the ability not just to make their plans blow up in their face, but God has the ability to pour divine judgment on their life that could only be called supernatural. Now here's what the world calls it. The world calls it bad luck. We don't believe in luck. We're Bible believers. We know that it's providence. We know it's the hand of God working in people's lives, not only with suffering, but with storms. He says, and horrible tempest. He has the ability to take that peaceful, placid life that they're living and in a moment throw it into absolute upheaval and turn their entire environment against them. In other words, I'm saying this, God can deal with them better than you or I could deal with them. It's the reason the Bible says that we ought to pray our enemies that in doing so uh, it will heap coals of fire upon their head that all it does is aggravate God's righteousness when we are persecuted, when we are afflicted unrighteously. God takes our part and He takes that seriously. And I'm saying this tonight, I I know how tempting it is. Somebody does wrong, somebody's terrible to you, you think, boy, if I I get a hold of them, man, I mean, I'll tell you, I would just wear them out, I'd destroy their life. But you know what y'all do instead? Leave them to God. And they'll wish that you had got a hold of them. It's painful manner. But then notice number two, it's perfect measure. He says, this shall be the portion of their cup. The idea being that which has been measured out and meted out unto them. That which has been poured into their cup because it is their lot, their appointed portion of judgment. Here's something we don't want to hear tonight. I'm about to kill the message. All right, you ready? Uh, sometimes we don't know what would be just? Sometimes if God turned us loose like a cyclone in someone's life, we'd destroy people that didn't deserve to be destroyed. Or we would heap and pour things on their life that maybe we didn't understand the full picture of. There might be other people that for whatever reason, we'd give them a pass. We would assume that what they did, they did in, in, inadvertently or they did it in, in, in simplicity and they weren't really trying to hurt us when in fact they wanted to destroy us. But can I trust you in this? Or can I tell you this? You can trust God that God will deal with them in perfect measure. He won't put an ounce more on them than what they have deserved and earned. But He won't withhold a single drop of what they have earned unto themselves unless they plead on the grace of Calvary, unless they put it under the blood of Christ. They'll be have dispensed unto them the exact perfect measure for what they have done. You can go through the Old Testament. You can find there were times the Bible 
tells us that the reason that the children of Israel, one of the reasons they spent 400 years in Egypt was because the Bible says that the the sins of the Amorites was not yet full. In other words, God was permitting the Amorites to continue having dominance in the land of Canaan uh, so that they could fill up the measure of their sin and unrighteousness. God was permitting it because they had not yet done enough for God to wipe them out, though He knew one day they would. So God waited until the perfectly appropriate time because He's just in all that He does. Trust in the Lord's justice. And then one last one tonight. Look down at verse 7. He says, For, in light of all of this, everything that we've said, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Preacher, society's falling apart around us. What can I do? Well, there's several things. You ought to be praying. You ought to be witnessing. You ought to be faithful to the Lord, faithful to His house, serving God. You ought to love one another. But as far as for your own peace of mind, for your own internal condition uh, in, in your in your walk with the Lord, in the preservation of your spirit and the rightness of your attitude, what can you do? You can trust Him tonight. Trust in His majesty, His position. Remember where He sits and what He sees. Trust in His wisdom and His providence. His providence in perfecting the righteous and reserving the wicked. Trust in His justice, His punishment, its painful manner and its perfect measure. But finally tonight, trust in the Lord's love. Trust in His pity. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. This isn't what I is in my notes. And I'm going to say what's in my notes in a moment. But can I just say God loves righteousness. And He hates wickedness. When you get disheartened because of how wicked society is, when you look around and say like the psalmist, a faithful man, who can find? Don't ever forget, God loves righteousness. And He hates wickedness. And then don't forget that He's God. And He gets to decide how this all plays out. I love righteousness. My flesh doesn't. My flesh loves wickedness like any flesh would. But the part of me that's grieved by society loves righteousness. I, 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 let me just speak for you. Wouldn't it be good to have somebody in charge of our country that loved God? That loved God. This ain't, listen, this ain't a Biden thing or a Trump thing. I've got my opinions and I'm not afraid to share them either. But I'm saying beyond all of that, when was the last time we had a president that had a personal relationship and walk with God and did what he did because he loved righteousness? Wanted righteousness in society. I, I, I can't even imagine what it'd be like. Could you imagine what it'd be like to look on TV and see the man that governs our country and be able to say, I know he'll do the right thing because he loves God and he loves righteousness. I know that he reads his Bible. I know that he prays and I know that he listens to God. And so we can trust him that he's telling us the truth and that he'll make the right choices for our country. There's going to come a day, probably won't be in a country, but it will be in a kingdom. For we'll be able to say that. You may never think about it, but I think about that sometimes. I I sit around and think, what a day it's going to be when we've got a king that is perfect and righteous. When we can sit back and say, oh yeah, don't worry about what's going on. Jesus is seated in Jerusalem and He's got control over every bit. Whenever the news comes across the wire, we don't have to say, all right, what's its spin? What's its angle? We can say that's a wire comes straight out of Jerusalem that's been certified and verified by the very word of truth himself. We know that it's absolute unmitigated truth. 
Whenever a policy is handed down, whenever a decision will be made in the kingdom, we won't have to sit there and say, all right, who's this making rich? Uh, who is this putting in power? Who is this preserving? We can say this was done because the righteous king loveth righteousness. And he loves his people. I, can, I just, I'm, I can't wait. I just, I, it excites me to think that I'm going to get to live one day in a kingdom like that. But until that time, you know what we can do? We can trust that that same God whose righteous Son will one day sit on that throne, that same God that right now sits on the throne of the universe, that God loves us. He loveth righteousness. Notice two things that are sort of hinted at here. First, notice when we think about the love of the Lord, think about His bond with the saints. Why is He good to the righteous? Because He loves righteousness. But here then is the question. How can a man be just with God? As Job said. Who truly is righteous? He loveth righteousness, but I don't know about you. I'm not bold enough to put my hand up and say that means He loves me because I'm righteous all the time. So why is that any comfort to us? Well, it's comfort to us because of what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says. In talking about all the things that Jesus does for the born-again believer in the New Testament, Paul says this, but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. Let's not skip over that. Of Him, of God, are ye in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are part of God. We are of God's nature because we are in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus is in us. And as a result of that, it says this, but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The Lord loveth righteousness. I'd have to say I'm not righteous. But one day as a 10-year-old boy, I took all my unrighteousness and I gave it to him. And he took all his righteousness and he put it on mine account. Now when God looks at me, you don't see somebody that's unrighteous. Oh, it's not that God's blind to the things that I do. But how he chooses to treat me is he treats me as the very righteous son of God. The Bible says to declare at this time I say his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. So the bond that God has with His people is that He loves righteousness and they have been made righteous by Jesus Christ. For Him to cast off His people, He'd have to cast off His Son. The bond between the saved child of God and the God of glory is as strong as the bond of the Trinity. It's as strong as the bond between the Father and the Son. We've been placed in Him and He in us and we are seated together with Him in heavenly places. And for God to deny us, He'd have to deny Himself. He loveth righteousness. And you say, well, preacher, sometimes, you know, I just get discouraged. Don't ever forget, listen, when you got born again, you got put in a group. You got put in a crowd. You became one of them that knows God. And you now are a partaker in His love and in His protection. We see His bond with the saints, but then we see His blessings to the saints. He says this, His countenance doth behold the upright. Now that word countenance is not a word we use very often today. But what it means is your face, your countenance, the look of your face. And oftentimes in the Bible, the word countenance is associated with a person's favor. For instance, Jacob in speaking uh, to Rachel said unto her in Genesis 31.5, I see your father's countenance 
that it is not with, that it is not toward me as before, but the God of my father hath been with me. In other words, he looks at Rachel and Leah and he says, you know, I've noticed that your daddy's attitude towards me has changed. Laban's countenance at one time had been kind and had been favorable, but he had noticed that of late it had not been the case. We have this same idea, excuse me, in Psalms 4, 6. It says, there be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. So the countenance of God is associated with the goodness of God. He shows goodness to us by putting his countenance, lifting his countenance upon us. In Psalms 21, 6 says this, for thou hast made him most blessed forever, speaking the righteous man. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. In other words, the countenance of God is associated not only with the goodness of God, but with the blessedness of God and with the gladness of God. And in the book of Numbers, Moses prays and says, Lord, lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. It's associated with the peace of God. So in other words, to have God's countenance is to have his blessings, to have his favor. And here's what the psalmist says, his countenance doth behold the upright. Now again, that means that positionally in our relationship to God, He loves us because we've been made righteous in Christ Jesus. But His countenance, His blessings are upon us in as much as we live and are upright in the way that we conduct ourselves. We ought to be reminded that if we'll keep serving God, we can keep expecting the blessings of God. That doesn't mean God's blessings always look the way you or I wish they did. Doesn't mean that it's a made to order. Just fill out your, your, your slip and ask God what kind of blessing you want. He'll give you anything you want. You want to hear that? Turn on Creflo Dollar. That's not what your Bible teaches. But it does mean this, that if we'll just keep being faithful and serving Him, we can rely on the fact that God's gladness, God's goodness, God's blessings, and God's peace will stay on our life. It's the reason the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, Thou will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me. What do we do, preacher? Society's falling all apart around us. Haven't you turned on the news? Yeah, more than I care to admit. But I've got news for you tonight. Our marching orders haven't changed. We ought to keep trusting Him. He's not surprised by any of this. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing that has ever surprised you has ever surprised God because nothing has ever surprised God? There are things surprise me all the time. I'm consistent. It's exciting being as ignorant as I am. You never know what's about to happen. It's a thrilling, invigorating way to live. But nothing's ever, ever surprised God. We look around and say, how wicked society is. Yeah, I agree with you. We say, preacher, they're going to get away with it. No, they ain't going to get away with it. We can trust the Lord that He's got it in perfect control. And we can keep trusting Him knowing that He loves us no matter our flaws or our failures, because He loves us in Jesus Christ. And all of our flaws and failures have already been took care of in Jesus Christ. And if we'll stay faithful following Him, His countenance will behold the upright. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I want you to come tonight. You might have some burdens. I, it's hard to imagine how we could walk through this world and not have burdens. Things that you struggle with. Maybe areas where you feel like you've been, you've been hurt, you've been done wrong. You struggle with bitterness. You struggle with obsessing over the vengeance. Lord, and you, you say, preacher, it's just hard to let go. It's hard to let go. I understand it is. I understand it is. We don't let go by saying it don't matter. We let go by saying, hey, it matters to God. God's in control and God can deal with this. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name. With